But this morning, we're going to continue our Gospel of Mark sermon series. We're going to be in chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn there. And, and this week, we actually start, or start part 26 or week 26 of this series. So we've been in this for quite some time. In the last few weeks, we've seen that Jesus' ministry is really starting to pick up some steam. Okay, so at the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus sends his disciples out two by two to go and, and preach and heal and cast out demons. And then in the middle part of chapter 6, King Herod hears about his ministry, and we get a window into what happened to John the Baptist as, as King Herod had him beheaded. We got to look at that on Mother's Day. It was such an encouraging Mother's Day message. And then last week, we saw that, that Jesus fed the 5,000 with only five loaves and two fishes. And and we saw that these 5,000 were hoping that Jesus would lead a revolution against Rome and set up a kingdom on earth. Instead of doing that, Jesus taught them and fed them, and he did this to show them what kind of leader he came to be. He's not a military leader. He's not a political leader. Instead, he is the good shepherd who will lovingly guide them and fill their needs. And, and we saw that each of us are called to be shepherded by Jesus. We're called to come under his loving leadership and let him guide us, but also we're called to help other people come under his leadership. Okay, so now this week, we're going to pick it up right after that miracle. So in verse 45, we're going to pick it up. It says this. It says, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land and he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them, but, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it's I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret, and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the, bo the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Okay, so the sermon title this morning, if you're taking notes, is Struggle and Revelation. Struggle and revelation. All right, let's pray over that before we jump in. So Jesus, we thank you so much for your presence this morning. And God, I pray that you would just move through this message. I pray that this message would not be my own ideas. I pray that it wouldn't be lofty words of wisdom, but in, instead it would be a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power. So God, we invite you to move in this room. We pray that for those who need to be encouraged, they'd be encouraged. And for those who need to be challenged, would be challenged. And we thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so in the summer of 2019, I began to sense that the Lord was calling us to start a new church in the Cedar Valley. At the time, we were leading Chi Alpha Campus Ministry at UNI, and we we're seeing God do great things. But in that season, we were just sensing that the Lord was transitioning us from campus ministry to church ministry, and specifically to start a church in the Cedar Valley that shared Chi Alpha's DNA. After receiving confirmation through, or through several different means, on October 14th of 2019, we officially committed to planting the church. In the following few months were a season of intense struggle. Within 48 hours, I came down with mono. Never had that before. Came down with that, and that took me out for about a month. And then we also faced relational difficulties, as some people sh 
Or some people struggle with this idea of us planting a new church, and we face all the insecurities that come with planting a church. I think it can seem like church planters are, are super confident, but at least for me, it was definitely an insecure thing to do. It's like, hey, I'm starting something that doesn't exist. It's going to be a church, and you should come and let me be your pastor, right? It's kind of an insecure thing to do. So dealing with all those personal things, we also had to store the passing on of Chi Alpha from our leadership to, to my younger brother's leadership, and he's done a great job, but that took some stewarding. And in the meantime, COVID broke out, and we had to navigate, how do you plant a church? How do you gather a bunch of people in a room in the middle of COVID? So, so we had, or had never navigated these kind of things before, especially all at once. It was a very complicated season. And on top of this, we had to navigate all the normal challenges of planting a church. Okay, so one of the challenges is finding a place to meet, uh, or finding a place to meet in for Sunday morning services. And in the spring of 2020, we began to take steps to find a location. Uh, this building actually came up for sale around that time, but we had no money. So I met with the pastor and said, hey, would you want to give it to us? That didn't work out, but we tried. After months of trying to secure this building, and even after trying to secure a couple others in town, uh, we decided, okay, we're just going to look for a portable location, since we don't have any money, we should probably just start portable, and, and we pray that God would give us the resource to, or to purchase at the right time, but everywhere we turned shut us down. The school district shut us down, uh, the movie theater, it just seemed like nothing was working, and at this point, it was the middle of May, and the clock was ticking as we were telling people that our church was going to start in September, and we'd start having preview services in August, and after trying for every single portable location I could think of, I finally went to my last resort. It was my safety net. I knew of a building in town where other church plants had met, and I set up a meeting with the owner of that building, and I was almost 100% sure that he would say yes. There's no way he's going to tell us no. On May 15th, I, I went into this meeting feeling so hopeful and excited. I had like visions. I had somehow mustered up these visions of us meeting in this room. I'm like, this is going to be great, even though it was my last resort. I'm like, this is going to be awesome. And, and to my surprise, he was not very excited about us meeting in his building, and he shut me down quickly and rather harshly. I went home that night just dejected and really confused. I, I told Emily, I said, I feel like I have no favor from God right now. I know he's called us to plant this church, but he doesn't seem very concerned with helping us plant this church. The previous five months had been a dogfight, and I wondered why God would ask me to do something that was this hard. Okay, so have you been there before? Maybe God's asked you to do something or to change something about your life, but, but it's very, very difficult. Or you feel like maybe you're, you're following God's will, you're, you're doing something that he's asked you to do, but for whatever reason, he just doesn't seem to be too concerned with helping you do that thing. It seems like the more you do what he says, the harder it gets. Or maybe you start to obey God in an area of your life, but it seems like you're moving upstream and everything is against you, everything is resisting you. Or maybe you've decided, you said, hey, I'm going to center my life on Jesus but for whatever reason, life keeps throwing you curveballs. It seems like the more you follow him, the harder it gets. The reality is, every follower of Jesus goes through struggles. Every follower of Jesus experiences pain and experiences resistance. In fact, there are times, or times when the Lord will purposefully send us into a struggle. There are so many reasons why we face struggles. You know, sometimes we experience struggles because of the fallen world we live in. We live in a sinful world, therefore there's going to be struggles. There's times we face it because of demonic opposition. And there's other times where it's God's mysterious will for us to go through struggles. There are so many reasons why, but, but the thing I want to focus on is not that so much, but I want to focus on how God leverages our struggles for his purposes. Okay, so the question I want to look at is what is God doing 
in the midst of the struggle. What is he doing? What does God hope to accomplish through our struggles? Our story in Mark is going to help us kind of drill down on this question today. And as we talked about last week, if we're going to truly understand these stories, if we're truly going to understand what Mark is trying to teach us, we need to understand the context in which they were written in. You know, sometimes we're like, trying to apply it directly to our context. But before we can do that, we need to understand what's going on in the first century context. Okay, so Jesus, he had just gotten done feeding a crowd full of people who wanted him to lead a revolution against Rome. They didn't want a servant king who died for their sins. They wanted a warrior king who would stand against Rome and lead a military campaign. And through feeding and teaching them, Jesus was attempting to show them what kind of leader he was. He was attempting to show them what he came to do. He didn't come to set up a worldly kingdom that's achieved through the sword, but he came to set up a heavenly kingdom that is achieved through his broken body and shed blood. But despite his attempts to explain this through his teaching and through his miracles, the crowd still didn't understand. And John ends his version of the story by saying this in in chapter 6 of his book. He says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. And Mark's version of the story doesn't quite tell us that, but it gives us some other details that, that draws a, or paints a fuller picture. It says this in verse 45. It says, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Okay, so in the Greek here, in the Greek for the, or for the phrase, immediately he made, there's this unusual forcefulness to this. There's an urgency to it. Essentially, Jesus is saying, get your tails out of here. He is forcing them to leave. He, he's pushing them out. So why did Jesus do that? Why was he so concerned with getting the disciples out of this environment? Well, it appears that Jesus was worried that the disciples would get swept up into the fervor of the crowd. As scholar James Edwards says, the disciples were not unsusceptible to the messianic contagion of the crowd. They could be infected with this passion for a military leader, and Jesus wanted to get them out of there as soon as possible before things got out of hand. Okay, so following this, he retreats to pray. He goes up on a mountain, and he spends some time with the Lord. You know, sometimes we just need to get along with God, right? And Jesus is having, he's having one of those moments. He's saying, I need to go and just be with the Father and recenter myself on what he's called me to do. These people are trying to get me to be a military leader, but I need to recenter myself on the call. Okay, so he's going there. He's spending time with the Lord. He's trying to recenter himself. This story shows us how easy it is to misunderstand who Jesus is. The disciples had been ministering with him and for him for quite some time. They had even preached about his kingdom. They had casted out demons in his name. They had healed people in his name. And yet, Jesus is still concerned that they might misunderstand who he is and what he came to do. Because that's the first thing I want you to write down. It's easy to misunderstand who Jesus is. And the same is true for us today. If the disciples could misunderstand who Jesus is, then I think we surely can. It's vital that we use the means that God has given us to understand him correctly. And the primary means is his church and his word. Okay, so the word of God is our foundation Everything we believe has to line up with the Word of God. Okay, so if you don't like something I teach, I hope it's because it came from the Word, not because it's my own idea. And if it did come from the Word, then you can fight with the Word of God, okay? Because I don't want to fight its battle for it. You can just talk to God about that, right? The Word of God is the foundation of everything we teach. Everything we believe has to line up with it. And His church 
is our means for better understanding the Word of God. So God gives us the church so we can encourage and challenge one another and help one another interpret the Scriptures and hear God's voice correctly. In our story today, though, Mark seems to be telling us that there's yet another way that we can understand who Jesus is. There's another way that he can draw a picture of who he is to us. So it says this in verse 47. It says, And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Okay, so it's interesting. After a long day of doing ministry together, Jesus sends the disciples. My wife doesn't like my sermon. She's leaving me. It's okay. I'm just playing. She's going to feed our baby. But uh, I'm just playing. All right. Amen. All right, so back to this. It's interesting. After a long day of doing ministry together, Jesus sends the disciples out on the boat. I think she's going to kill me for that afterwards. But, uh, but, uh, but Jesus sends the disciples out on the boat only to find themselves facing the intense struggle of a high wind. It's important to note that this is not like the storm in Mark chapter 4. It's not a life-threatening storm. It's more of just a strong wind, but it's still a difficult thing to deal with. And despite their best efforts, it seems like they can't make any progress against the wind. Like, I think about when I went canoeing with my friends, it never works out that well. I feel like we take the canoe this way, and then we go this way. We can't seem to get it straight because we're on the wrong side or something. That's what they were experiencing. None of you have experienced that. You're like, what is he talking about? I'm a great canoeer. I'm a terrible canoeer. Okay, I'm just like, going to admit that right here. But anyways, back to what we're talking about. It's important to notice that, that Jesus, he, he sends them out on purpose, it seems like, to struggle against the wind. Okay, so this leads us to an important point. Jesus often sends us to the struggle. Okay, some of you don't want to hear that this morning. You're like, wait, I thought Jesus just wanted to make everything perfect for me. No, sometimes he sends us to the, or to the struggle on purpose. And we see this principle throughout both the Old and the New Testaments. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abram. He says, or he says leave your home country and I'm going to make you a father of a great nation. I'm going to give you this promised land. And despite this glorious calling, it takes decades for him to have his son Isaac, and there was so much, there was so much struggle between the promise and the fulfillment. In Exodus, God calls Moses to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, and he does. It takes a long time to do so. He does. He leads them through the Red Sea, and then they go into the wilderness, and they wander around the, they wander around the wilderness for 40 years, and, and Moses has to deal with this disobedient, difficult, and rebellious people. The point is, Moses had to struggle before they got to the promised land. In First and Second Samuel, God calls King David to be the king of Israel. He, he gives him this glorious calling, but King David spends much of his life, on the front end of his life, running from King Saul, who was the king before him, and then on the back end, running from his son, or son Absalom, who tried to take the kingdom from him. The point is, even though David was, was God's chosen king, he faced a ton of struggle during his life. In the Gospels, before Jesus launches into ministry, he he has to struggle against the devil in the wilderness. And then in the New Testament, Paul is called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He's called to plant the church in Gentile territory, but it seems like everywhere he turns, he runs into opposition. In 2 Corinthians, he talks about how God even allowed a thorn in the flesh to be given to him. And we don't know exactly what the thorn was, but it was certainly a difficult thing. And he would often ask God to take it away but the Lord says this to him in verse, verse 9 of chapter 12. It says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Okay, so in some mysterious way, his, or his struggle was a special way for him to experience God's power and grace. I could go on and on. The point is, Jesus will often send us to a struggle. While he doesn't cause evil, he does allow us to be tested and he does give us trials. But the question is why? Why would God allow his kids to struggle? Why does he sometimes even purposefully send us through a struggle? Well, let's look at our story again in verse 48. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it's I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind seized, and they were utterly astounded. As Jesus was praying, it appears that he was able to see the sea from the mountain, and he saw his disciples struggling. Right? I think of myself canoeing. He like sees me canoeing like back and forth like this. He's like, that guy needs some help. Okay, so he comes out. It's the fourth watch of the night. It's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. He comes out on the water. He walks on the water to the disciples. You know, he could have just you know, swam to him and not freaked him out, but he's like, I'm just going to walk. It's quicker. And it appears that the same compassion that compelled him to teach and to feed the crowd after or the day before now caused him to go out to the disciples and help them. See, Jesus is compassionate. He wants to help us. And he comes out to them, but he doesn't just come to them to help them. That's not his only purpose. He's also seeking to reveal himself to the disciples. By walking on the sea, he, he's making a point. He is giving them a glimpse into who he is. He, he's showing them that he is divine, that he is God, as only God can walk on water in the Old Testament. And Mark notes that Jesus intended to pass by them. Why would he want to pass by them if he's going out to help them? It seems like Mark is yet again drawing another comparison between Jesus and God in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God passed by Moses and he passed by Elijah to reveal himself to them. Mark is making the point that Jesus is trying to reveal himself as God and more specifically as the Messiah to his disciples. And while we would expect the disciples to be encouraged by Jesus coming to them on the sea, they are terrified. They are freaking out. They think he's some type of ghost or a type of sea demon. And to that, he, he reassures them by saying, take heart, it's I, do not be afraid. And it's easy in the English version to miss the gravity of this statement. In the Greek, it is I, is the same thing that God said to Moses when he revealed himself to him. And, and not just that, but in the Old Testament, whenever that phrase, it is I, is coupled with a call to take heart or to not fear, it's a way that God reveals himself to people. It seems like with each chapter of Mark, Mark is drawing a clearer picture of who Jesus is. There's a tension growing with each miracle. Sick people are healed. Demons are driven out. The hungry are fed. The storms are calmed and winds are stilled. As the disciples asked in Mark 4, I think Mark wants us to ask the question, who is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? That's the question we're supposed to ask as we're journeying throughout the gospel of Mark. This buildup of Jesus' identity won't climax until Mark 8 when Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah. But Mark is making it pretty clear right now. In Jesus, God has come to do what Israel could never do. He has come to be the obedient and faithful human. 
He's come to restore this world once and for all. But he's not going to do it through force. He's going to do it by dying and by rising again. In his death and resurrection, he will disarm the rulers of this world, defeat sin and death once and for all, and become the true king of the world. In the midst of the disciples' struggle against the wind, they get a glimpse of who Jesus is. Jesus is showing the disciples that he is the Messiah. He has come to put the world right. In the same way, hear me this morning, in the same way, it's in the struggle that God reveals himself to us. We don't just get a picture of who God is through the word of God and through the church. We also get a picture of who God is through our struggles. The struggle is the place of revelation. The struggle is the place of revelation. This has been true all throughout the Gospel of Mark. Whenever the disciples face a struggle, whether that be lack of food, a crazy storm, a dead body, a sick or needy person, no matter what it is, they get a revelation of who Jesus is as he takes authority over these things. The same is true for us. When we face struggles, that is where we get to see the face of God up close. And sometimes this can look like experiencing intimacy with him in a way that we never have before. As we process through grief, toil, or pain, we get to experience the nearness of Jesus who is near to the brokenhearted. For, for my life, I think about the story of mine and Emily's miscarriage in 2017 that I've shared before. It was the most intense season of grief in my life, but it was also the deepest intimacy with Jesus that I had ever experienced up until that point. As we were driven to our knees in despair, we got to experience the presence of Jesus in a way that I don't think we could have experienced if we were on the mountaintop. And we can also experience his revelation in our struggles by seeing him move in power. As we see him handle our struggle, we get to see the power of God. As we see God do what feels like the impossible and move our mountains, we get to see his raw power. When the Lord finally came through for us and, and gave us not just one child, but now three in four years, I think the Lord has a sense of humor, we saw his power in a way that, or that we never had before. If we had not experienced the struggle of infertility and miscarriage, we would not have been able to see his power in this way and say, only God. Struggle leads to revelation. That's what you got to get this morning. Struggle leads to revelation, both revelation of God's presence and God's power. And we see this at the end of our story as, as sick people come to Jesus and try to touch his garments so they can be healed. Their, their struggle leads to a revelation. Our struggles are the place of revelation. Get that in your bones this morning. Nothing is wasted in God's kingdom. Struggles have a purpose. Only Jesus can redeem our struggles. James says it this way in chapter one of his book. He says, count it all joy. Did you say joy? Yeah, I said joy, says James. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, be excited about it because God's doing something. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its, or have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Okay, so James, he's saying we can face trials with joy because trials grow us. They produce steadfastness in us so that we can mature. And notice in verse 4, he says, let steadfastness have a full effect. He's saying, let it do its job. Let the trial do what it wants to do. Let it produce that steadfastness in you. Peter says it this way. It's like the early church knew how to struggle, right? They faced a lot of struggles. It says this in 1 Peter. He says, in this you rejoice, though not for, or though, or though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may found to, or, or may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says that trials are the place where our faith is proved to be genuine. It's the place where our faith becomes real. I don't know what you faced in the past. I don't know what you're facing this morning, and I have no idea what you'll face in the future. But when you get out on the water and you start struggling against the wind, and it seems like Jesus is taking a nap on a mountain, you need to know that he is trying to do something. He's trying to reveal himself to you in the midst of your struggle. Just as God revealed his identity to Moses in the burning bush as Moses was going through his own exile, God wants to give you your burning bush moments in the midst of your struggles. But you have to have eyes to see what God is doing. You have to get your eyes off your problem and your eyes on God. Even in the midst of your pain, experience his presence as God draws near to you. Even in the midst of your impossible circumstances where it feels like your back is against a wall, ask God to move your mountain and see him move in power in a new way. With this in mind, if our struggles are the place of revelation, where God shows himself to be God, what are our struggles supposed to teach us? What's the whole point? You know, God reveals himself, but, but what are they supposed to teach us? Verse 51 and 52 give us a glimpse. It says this, And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. The disciples respond to Jesus' stilling of the wind and walking on water with complete amazement. They are utterly astounded. They are blown away, which makes sense rationally, right? People don't walk on water. It's okay to be freaked out when someone walks on water. But Mark says something very important when he explains why they're amazed. He says they're amazed for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Jesus had already calmed the storm. He had fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. He had raised a dead girl. He had healed dozens of people. He had driven out demons, and I could go on and on. And yet, they were still being amazed by Jesus' power. Why? Because their hearts were hard. They hadn't learned the lesson that their struggles were supposed to teach them. Up until this point in the gospel, hardened hearts had only been attributed to outsiders. They weren't attributed to the disciples yet. But now Mark is saying the disciples, well, they got hard hearts too. He's saying that their hearts are hard because they still didn't trust that Jesus was the Messiah yet. Despite all the marvelous things he had done in their lives, their hearts, or their hearts still did not trust him because their hearts had not been changed yet. Mark is saying, hear this, that Jesus can do miracles all day long, but if your heart is hard, then it's all for nothing. Our amazement's only going to be temporary, and when the next struggle comes around, then we still won't trust him. We have to get to a point where the revelations we receive of Jesus actually change our hearts and cause us to trust him in the future. We need to get to a point where no matter what the world throws at us, we have an unshakable peace and confidence because we know who Jesus is. We know that he's the same God who promised Abram that he would make him into a great nation and came through on that promise. He's the same God who freed the Israelites from the grips of Pharaoh. He's the same God who came and died and rose again. And if he's that God, then we can trust him no matter what. With all that said, God wants to use our struggles to reveal himself to us, to soften our hearts, and to teach us, hear this, to teach us to trust him in the future. With that said, my main idea this morning is this. As Jesus reveals himself to us in our struggles, we must learn 
to trust him no matter what we face. That's the whole point. It's not just to reveal himself to you, but to reveal himself to you in such a way that it teaches you to trust him no matter what happens in your life. Jesus is after your trust. He's after your your complete confidence and trust in him. And this appears to be what Mark is trying to teach us this morning. The disciples had experienced one of the greatest miracles in history the day before. And yet they were still freaked out that Jesus walked on water. The only explanation for this is they had really hard hearts. Their hearts had not been changed yet. They didn't really trust him. Again, Jesus could keep doing the miracles, but their hearts needed to be changed. That's the miracle that, or that desperately needed to happen. And eventually it would happen at the end of the gospel of Mark. But their hearts needed to be changed. Their hearts needed to be softened. We have to allow what Jesus does for us to soften our hearts. We have to allow when he moves in our lives, we have to allow it to change us so that we can trust him in the future. The idea is that the next time a big storm breaks out, like Mark chapter four, they don't freak out, but they're like, hey, Jesus is sleeping here on the cushion. He'll take care of it. That's the idea. That's the essence of growing into Christ's likeness, to, to grow to a place where you trust him no matter what happens. Let us not make the same mistake as these disciples. My personal goal in life is to get to a point where no matter what I face, I have a firm trust in God because I've seen him move in my life and I know what he's done for me on the cross and in the resurrection. I want to get to a point because of that, I trust him no matter what life throws my way. I'm not quite there yet, to be honest. I still freak out a little bit sometimes, but I'm hoping to grow into that. As I shared earlier, October of 2019 through May 2020 was some of the toughest months of my life. And one of the greatest challenges of that season was trying to find a place for our church to meet in. And again, I was already struggling with a bunch of insecurity because I was leaving everything I knew to venture into something new. And I just desperately wanted God to work in this situation so I could have some sense of security. I'm like, Lord, I'm already out here on the water. I don't know what I'm doing. If you could just give us a place to meet, that would make me feel a little bit of peace. On the night of May 16th, so the day after I had that meeting, I went to sleep just utterly undone before God. I can still remember that night. I was undone. I had told only the day before again that I didn't feel like I had any favor from God. And I felt like I had, had come to the end of myself. I knew at that point, I just knew that if God wanted this whole thing to happen, then he had to show up. He needed to take over because I wasn't very good at it. I dropped my oar in the water, so to speak. And I said, Jesus, if we're getting to the other side, you got to come captain this ship. At 3 a.m. that morning, I woke up in the middle of the night, and this doesn't happen. I sleep very well. I sleep very heavy. I woke up at 3 a.m., and I just felt like the Lord told me to, uh, to search for convention centers in town. I hadn't done that specific search yet. And I searched it, and I, I stumbled upon the Hilton Garden Inn in Cedar Falls. I called them and on Monday, and within a week, we had a signed contract, and it's like ridiculously cheap because they had nobody meeting there at the time because of COVID. It seemed like they wanted us more than we wanted them, which was the first. I'm like, this is pretty cool. I'm glad the Lord didn't give us all these other places. And actually, it was the best place out of any of the places we looked at. And a year after that, well, not even a year after that, we purchased this building. So again, started with no money. It started with asking the pastor to give it to us. God gave it to us in his timing, right? Like within a year, we purchased this building. It's in our name. And we were able to raise over $100,000 for down payment. And we raised over $100,000 for, for renovations. The question is, what did I learn through the struggle of finding a home for our church. What was the lesson that God was trying to teach me? God was trying to teach me that he is the provider of sent church. He is the captain of this ship. He is the leader. I have this written on my office. It says that, that Jesus is the church planter and you're not. 
I tell myself that every day. Jesus is the church planter. He is the one leading this ship. That's the lesson he was trying to teach me. Before we even got into ever having services, he wanted me to know who the true leader is. He knows what he's doing and he has our back. And that applies not just for our church as a whole, but in your life. He has your back. Even when things are hard, you need to remember that Jesus is the captain of your life. He's the captain of your heart. And since then, for me, I've navigated other struggles since that struggle, right? It's not like the only struggle in my life was finding a place for us to meet. I've navigated struggles as the pastor of this church. Each time, though, he reveals himself to me and my trust for him grows. I told Emily last night, I was kind of preaching the sermon to her. I do that to her Saturday nights. I was in our bedroom, you know, uh, preaching without a shirt on. I had shorts on, but just like going at it. And I told her, I was like, I was like, babe, it seems like every time I get to this place where I'm tempted not to trust him, I do the same thing I did before. I start freaking out. And then he comes through again. He comes through again. He comes through again. And when am I going to get to a point? I said this to her. I said, I said, when am I going to get to a point where I just start trusting him? Like, no matter what's going on, I trust him. I don't get scared. I don't get worried because I know who the captain is. I know who our God is. I know who's leading us. I know who's guiding us. He is our shepherd, as Jesus talked about earlier in Matthew 6. He is the shepherd. He provides for our needs. It's not through our own means. It's not through our own ways. It's through him. Just give him your five loaves and two fishes and watch him multiply. I told her, I said, when am I going to get to that point? Well, I hope I get to that point sooner rather than later because I'll be a better leader. (laughs) I'll be a better pastor for you. I hope we can all get there, though, where no matter what's going on in the world, we don't freak out, we don't lose our marbles. Instead, we trust the Lord because we know that he is the captain. I pray we get to a point where the fact that he's come through in the past for us teaches us to trust him for the future. And this is the Lord's heart for you. He wants to prove himself to you so much so that, that when you face your own struggle, you can just quietly trust him because you know that he's watching over you from the mountain and he will come to be with you at just the right time. And you know that he can calm the wind with just a word. As I wrote this sermon, I prayed about a couple applications for specific people. And I felt like the Lord gave me just uh, three specific applications, but there's so many we could do. So I'm just gonna give these three because I just felt like this is for somebody here. So the first one is this. If you come in here this morning and you're struggling with your job, I believe the Lord has a word for you. Okay, so for you, maybe like, the job doesn't feel right for you, or maybe you're dealing with a really difficult person at your job. I believe the Lord wants you to know that he has a purpose for you in your struggle. He wants to use this to help you become more like him, and he wants to teach you to trust him through this difficult circumstance. He may lead you to a different job. He may change your circumstance at some point, but most importantly, he wants to reveal himself to you by walking with you through the struggle if you'll just allow him to. The second group is maybe you come in here and and you're struggling with a broken relationship. You're at odds with somebody. Jesus wants you to know that he has a purpose in your pain. He wants to reveal his enemy love to you. The only way you can get enemy love like Jesus had is if you have some enemies. So maybe this person, this person who's hurt you, Jesus wants to use them to teach you how to love someone who's difficult. He wants to teach you how to love people when they can't give you anything in return. He wants to teach you how to forgive like he does. But not just that, he wants you to know that he sees your pain. Jesus is not far off. He's not just chilling on the mountain forever. He wants to come and be with you and walk with you through this pain. Use the struggle to lean into him. Don't run from him. And the last group is maybe you're here and you're struggling financially. This morning, know that Jesus is your provider. He is Jehovah Jireh. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. 
of course do your part. That's why we teach the tithe here. We believe that, that God can do more with our 90% than we can do with 100%. We believe that there's something supernatural that happens when we trust God with that 10%. We don't want something or something from you. We want something for you. So I encourage you to do your part. Be faithful with tithing and generosity. Practice wise, uh, or practice wise stewardship. But after that, watch God supply every need of yours. It says in Philippians 4 that he will supply every need of yours. He'll take care of everything. I could go on and on and on. There's so many ways to apply this, but the point is your struggles have a purpose. Your struggles have a purpose. Nothing is wasted. Jesus wants to reveal himself to you in a way that he can't when everything is going well. Allow him to do that. Get a glimpse of the son of God this morning. As he reveals himself, learn to trust him in the future. Let him change your heart so that nobody could ever say of you that you have a hard heart. If we can be a church of soft-hearted people who actually trust Jesus, there is no stopping what God wants to do. If we can be a church that, that struggles well, we need people in our world to struggle well. If we, can, if we can struggle well and trust Jesus in the midst of our struggle, he will use us in ways we could never imagine. As we trust Jesus in the midst of the struggle, we will persevere and we will grow further into his likeness. And as he comes through on our behalf, our faith will grow exponentially and we'll be able to trust him for bigger things in the future. As this happens, we will be a testimony to a watching world who is looking for a non-anxious church that truly trusts God. I believe many people will come to know Jesus through our unshakable trust. That's the prayer. All right, let's stand to our feet. Let's close here. I believe God wants to meet with us. I believe he's already meeting with us, but I believe that there's something important that's gonna happen in these final moments of the service. As always, the altars will be open. The prayer team's available up here. They're gonna be coming. But I also wanna give you a way to respond from your seat. So if you could just bow your heads and close your eyes. I just wanna have a moment. There's a moment between you and the Lord. If you come in here this morning and you're struggling with something, it could be something small, something big, but, but there's some struggle and you want Jesus to reveal himself to you through the struggle, I want to give you a chance just to let him know that that's what you want. Just to, to raise your hand to heaven and say, Jesus, I'm going through something. And say, I need you to reveal yourself to me through this struggle. So I'm going to count to three. When I do, I just want you to slip up your hand to Jesus saying, Jesus, I need you to reveal yourself to me. So one, two, three. Some of across this room. Tons of hands going up. It's just a way to surrender to God right now. It's just a way to say, Jesus, I need you to show yourself to me. All right, I'm going to pray. And you pray in your heart. Jesus, right now we come to you. And for those who are going through something, Lord, we ask you to reveal yourself to us in the midst of these struggles. There's so many different struggles that are brought into this place, but God, I pray that in the midst of all of them, you would show yourself to be the Prince of Peace, to be the one who has it all in his hands, to be the one who's taking care of us and supplying every need of ours. God, we love you. We thank you. We pray for revelation in these final moments as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.